If you're able, please stand with us this morning for the reading of God's word, which is Psalm 23. Psalm 23 can be found on page 458 of the Pew Bible. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's word. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Psalm 23 and let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have confidence that whenever we open this book, you are speaking. So Lord, our prayer this morning is that we would be listening. That you, by your spirit, would give us ears to hear you and eyes to see you. And that your spirit would be taking your word and applying it to our hearts to change us to be more and more like your Son. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I wanted to step outside of our Hebrews series just for one week and into what is without question the most familiar psalm, uh, if not the most familiar chapter in the entire Bible, Psalm 23, the great shepherd's psalm. Because every now and then we just need to hear God's voice from the Psalms. And uh, we're actually going to be spending our summer in the Psalms beginning in July, coming up. We're going to have a team of teachers walking through selections from what's called Book 2 of the Psalms. That's chapters 42 to 72. And uh, I've often said, and, and I'm really only half joking, that I frankly and personally would be happy to just preach the Psalms the rest of my life. I would, I would love to do something like that. These, this book is just so precious. Of course, we need the whole counsel of God's word, and so I won't do that. But um, this is where my heart has been this week, and so this is where we are this morning in Psalm 23. Now, concerning this psalm, it is nothing short of remarkable how these simple lines have absolutely captured the imagination, not just of believers for generations, but even of popular culture. I mean, this is not just a personal favorite for many Christians. Uh, Anytime you see a funeral uh, depicted in television or film, you're most likely to hear the words of this psalm being read, uh, which is partly because they're often read during actual funerals. Uh, These lines have been reshaped into hymns, like we've sung this morning. They've been set to all kinds of music. They've even been sampled in pop music from Pink Floyd to Coolio. And so you have to kind of ask, what is it about this psalm that has generated such an enduring legacy among such a diverse audience? Why do we so often find ourselves in these verses? And I think there are two things, at least. I'm sure there's lots, but I think there are two, at least. Uh, First, I think it's because this psalm gives testimony to the vulnerability and fear 
that's common to all humanity. The vulnerability and fear. The, the valley of the shadow of death. Just think of that phrase. I can think of no other phrase that captures so well the darkness and the shrouded mystery of all that we fear in life. Of evil, of death itself. This is the valley where death's shadow looms over you as though death himself is standing right behind you. And you can just see the shadow in your midst. That's an image. That's a powerful picture. And it's a picture that's only amplified when you combine it with the imagery of people as sheep. A weak, needy, vulnerable, defenseless before predators, and perhaps worst of all, prone to wander. And so, you know, you remember what what Jesus himself saw when he looked out on the people throughout the cities and villages of Judea. He saw that they were, quote, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Vulnerable sheep in passing through a a dark, dangerous valley. That is a fitting metaphor for life in a broken world. For life uh, in a world where sin and evil seems to threaten us around every corner. From uh, the uncertainty of things that we take for granted. Just, you know, uh, things like a job. Or, or a house, or food, to the temptation to plunge ourselves headlong into activities that might satisfy for the moment, but they're ultimately going to rot our souls and rot our relationships, to the simple risk of loving someone, knowing in the back of your head that this person might take advantage of you. They might manipulate you, abandon you, or reject you. So the valley where death's shadow looms over you as a reminder that all is not the way it's supposed to be. That there's a a weakness and a vulnerability to life in this fallen world. I think that imagery resonates with people, whether they know Jesus or not. So I think that's one of the first reasons why this psalm is so popular. But I, I think there's a second reason And it's not just because it gives voice to the problem that's common to all humanity, but that it points us to an adequate solution for that problem. That there is a shepherd who is able to lead us safely through this dreadful valley such that we need not be afraid in the midst of it. We need not be afraid. And that shepherd's name is Yahweh. The Lord, the the King of Israel, the God of all creation. And as we look at this psalm, it's important to understand that that the imagery of king is just as important as the imagery of shepherd. Uh, If we're going to make sense of Psalm 23, there's a strong connection between those two things, king and shepherd. That that phrase in Matthew 9, that, that when Jesus saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. That phrase actually comes from the Old Testament where it's used to describe when a king or a leader would fail to rule his people well. Because kings in the Old Testament and and even in the ancient world more broadly, one of their core charges was to shepherd the people under their rule. That's the imagery that was used to describe the, 
the function of the king. You think of David, for instance, when he was taken from among the flocks, the literal sheep, to, quote, shepherd, to, to be, quote, shepherd of my people Israel and prince over Israel. That was his job description in 2 Samuel 5. Or even how God describes his own kingship. The opening line of Psalm 80 says, Hear us, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth. So notice how it just seamlessly takes the imagery of God as a shepherd and then puts that shepherd on the throne. God is also king because those two things go hand in hand. Such that when God anoints his king, he expects them to shepherd his people. And when they fail, the people become like sheep without a shepherd. You see it in, in 1 Kings 22, when Ahab abdicated his role so that, quote, all Israel was scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And you see it in Ezekiel 34, when the, Israel, the uh, elders of Israel fail to shepherd well. And the Lord says to them, my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd. The king, the leaders are to be the shepherds. And so to be a king is to be a shepherd and, and, and those go hand in hand. And that's why when we get to Psalm 23, we see a shift in imagery right even in this very psalm. In, in verses one through four, we're in the pasture, right? The green pasture, the still waters. So it begins in the pasture, but the psalm ends up in the palace in verses five through six at a celebration feast. A victory feast, the anointing oil, the overflowing cup. Because the king is the shepherd, the shepherd is the king. And he is faithful as a king and a shepherd to take care of his people. That's what he wants us to see here. And when we see Psalm 23 in light of the whole of Scripture, we see that he exercises his shepherd rule preeminently by sending his own son, Jesus, to be our good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. So Psalm 23, we see it laid out in three sections, really. First, you have a portrait of provision in verses one through three, of protection in verse four, and then a portrait of a king who is able to bring us safely home in verses five to six. And that's how we're going to walk through it. So first, provision. If you have the shepherd, you have everything that you need. If you have the shepherd, you have everything that you need. Verses 1 through 3. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That is a beautiful, breathtaking picture of God's provision for his people. The shepherd supplies everything that's needed. Food, the green pastures, water, the still waters. He, he supplies rest, direction, guidance. Again, the point of, this, of these verses is that if you have the shepherd, you have all that you actually need. And that's what verse 1 is actually saying. When that phrase, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, that phrase can be a little confusing because sometimes it can sound like 
the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not have wants. I shall not have desires. I won't be greedy. Sometimes we think that's what it's saying. It's really just an older English way of saying, I shall not be in want. I shall lack nothing. God provides everything we need. So if you have the shepherd, you have everything. And that's what the psalm is saying. That's the kind of shepherd God is. But often our experience tells us something different, right? We see, we know that's the right answer, but we don't always feel that in our hearts as we walk through the trials of life. Many of us actually face great need in our lives. Urgent needs that we don't even or always know how to meet. I mean, it can be something as simple as a ride to the doctor or you know, a little time to ourselves. It could be something as personal as needing a friend, someone that you can talk to and trust. Sometimes it's a lot bigger than that. I need a job. I get that the Lord is my shepherd, but that does not change the fact that I have a stack of bills that need to be paid here. Sometimes we need a place to live. We need to fix our marriage. We need a miracle in our medical condition. And so we face great, honest need in this world. And and the temptation left to ourselves is to think that it's on us to meet that, to just become self-reliant, to look inside to meet our own needs, to depend on our own strength or resourcefulness, our own resolve and grit. If it's going to be, it's up to me. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. God helps those who help themselves, right? Now, that's rubbish, but we believe it. We believe it. We put the weight of provision on ourselves, which then often causes us to close our hearts toward others and to close our hands around our possessions because we need it. We need it. Or, if we don't turn inward, we'll turn outward to something or someone else and become dependent on them, like a a kind of co-dependency, whether it's alcohol or entertainment or work or, or another person. And whatever it is, we look to that person or that thing to be the shepherd of our souls, to meet all of our needs. We need them, and yet we despise them Because they constantly let us down. It's an unwinnable situation. They can't bear the weight of the burden, and neither can we. Because ultimately, it's not a weight that either of us were meant to bear. It's a weight that God himself, as our shepherd king, bears. He's the one who provides in this psalm. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads beside still waters. He restores my soul. He doesn't say, hey, figure this out and get back to me when you put your life back together. Or when you find a job, then we'll talk and maybe I'll answer your prayers. He doesn't say that. He's the one who takes the lead, who takes the charge to provide his care. And as the creator of the universe and the redeemer of our souls, he not only has the power to secure for us all that we need to revitalize our lives, to restore our souls in this fallen world, but he also has the wisdom and love to know when to supply that which he has secured. So that if you have one who's able to meet your needs, even when you feel empty, you have everything you need. 
when we travel with our kids, uh, our children each pack a little backpack that, of their stuff to keep them busy and whatever on the road. We don't ask them to carry around a week's worth of clothes and food and everything that they might need for the next seven days on that trip and stuff it in that backpack. So, left to themselves, they do not have everything they need. They're good for about two hours of entertainment. That's what they've got. But they have us, their parents. And if we have the means to supply their needs, the food, the clothing, and so on, then even though they don't have everything in their own possession, they have everything they need because they have us. And that's the kind of provision God gives us. If you have the shepherd, you have everything you need. We need to clarify something here. This psalm does not depict God as our shepherd and the one who meets our needs because our needs are the most important thing in this world. That can be our tendency when you read a promise like this to kind of make our own needs sovereign. The one good around which all other goods are measured are my needs being met. As though that's the most important thing and God simply exists to meet them as I define them. Huge temptation to do that, not just in our relationship with God. There's a big temptation to do that in every relationship we have, to uh, value it and evaluate it based on the extent to which my needs are met. But God is not merely a divine substitute for some human codependency. He's a shepherd who meets our needs, not just for the sake of our needs, but for the sake of his name. That's what you see in verse 3. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yes, he meets our needs in his love for us, but there's something bigger than us in the psalm. We belong to God. He's the one who made us for his purposes. And his gentle shepherd care for us in our weakness is designed to rescue us and to restore us to what we were made to be and to do, not just what we want to be and to do. And what we were made for was to walk in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, for his glory and honor, to live our lives in such a way that that the love of God and the love of neighbor is what dominates our hearts and our time and our attitudes, our actions, our words, so that We make much of God in everything we are and everything we do. That's why and how and what for uh, God meeting our needs. Now, that might actually sound a little bit egotistical if you think about it. God created us for his own glory. Interesting. Uh, If I were to create something just to make myself look good, that would be kind of selfish, right? So, So why is God not selfish to do that? Well, very simply, because he's the best thing there is in creation. And if he wants to give what is best to us, he can't give us anything other than himself. There's no greater treasure. So, so the greatest joy for us comes in the greatest glory to God. Those things are woven together. And so he meets our needs for his own glory, which is at the same time our own good. 
God is the shepherd who provides our needs. And if you have the shepherd, you have everything that you need. But a good shepherd not only provides, he also protects. That's the second point of verse 4. If you have the shepherd, you don't have to be afraid. If you have the shepherd, you do not have to be afraid. Verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And again, you have this breathtaking picture of God's protection, right? The, the very image that, that best captures the uncertainty and the danger of this broken and fallen world, this valley of the shadow of death, that's the very thing through which God leads us such that we need not fear. If you have the shepherd, you don't have to be afraid. But we need to notice two things about these verses, this verse specifically. First, the reason we're told not to fear is not because evil isn't real or isn't in the valley. So the reason we're told not to be afraid isn't because there's nothing to actually be afraid about. There is something to be afraid about. There's very real evil and pain in this world. The picture of the valley of the shadow of death is a terrifying picture for a reason. Because it's true. It's true. It captures accurately how messed up this world is. It illustrates the terrifying uh, thought of evil, of, of death, of exploitation, of violence and betrayal and hardship and neglect. There, there are things to be afraid of. There are ways in which this world works that it's not supposed to that can cause real harm and pain. And so he's not saying, don't be afraid because it's not really that bad. You're overreacting. That's not why he tells us not to fear. And left to ourselves, when, when, we, when we're honest about the things that are, that are scary about this broken world, um, it's easy to become, for our reaction, to become self-protective. When we recognize, yes, there are real fears here, we just can kind of close off and, and, and become self-protective. Which, on the one hand, there is a certain level of wisdom in that. If you're being taken advantage of by someone, or if you are being exploited, especially by someone in power over you, there's no virtue in just laying down and, and, and letting them do that. That's, it's not okay for people to do that. And you need to say no. You need to talk to someone that you trust that can help you in that situation. And so some of the protectiveness is just wisdom and common sense. But in our fear, there's a temptation to become so guarded that we simply close ourselves off from everyone else and again, become completely reliant on our own selves. To build a wall between yourself and the world, bowing never to be taken advantage of again, never to be the victim again. If we can do that emotionally, where we just kind of hide the true self, and we, we just put on this image of someone we're not really in order to protect ourselves from being hurt. We can do it physically, where we avoid people or certain places, and we close our hearts. 
And, and that level of self-protectiveness goes beyond wisdom. It becomes unhealthy because we were made for community. We were made for relationship with one another and with the Lord. And, and to be completely honest, I mean, safety is good, but it can also become an idol where everything is about safety. And, and to be honest, that's just not realistic. I mean, there's wisdom. Put your seatbelt on when you drive your car. There's wisdom in being safe. But there's also something where we convince ourselves that we have this kind of control, but really it's illusion. It's an illusion. There's so much in life we can't control when it comes to our safety. We need protection, yes. But we need a protection that's far bigger than anything we can provide ourselves. We need a protection that comes from a shepherd who is over us. And that's the second observation about this verse. We're, we're told not to fear, not because there's nothing to fear. We're told not to fear, second, because the one who is with us is stronger than anything that we might have need to fear. The one who's with us is stronger than the evil and darkness around us. He says, I will not fear evil, for you are with me, because you are with me. It's God's presence that makes the difference, your rod and your staff, those are the instruments that the shepherd uses, right? To, to beat off the wolves or to rescue the sheep from a precarious place. They comfort me. God's presence is what makes the difference, such that if you have the shepherd, even if your world is falling apart around you, you don't have to be afraid because the one who's with you is stronger than the evil in this world. I mean, you think about going to the zoo. Uh, how foolish is it to stand two feet away from a grown male lion? You know, that just, that's not common sense, right? That doesn't make any sense at all, but we do it all the time. Not because the lion isn't actually dangerous, or they couldn't bite our heads off if he wanted to, but because the glass between me and the lion is stronger than the lion. And so I don't have to be afraid staring a lion in the face if that which is with me is stronger than him. That's the picture of the shepherd's presence with us. As First John 4 puts it, the one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. If you have the shepherd, you don't have to be afraid. And so with that shepherd's protection, we're actually free to live in a world that's broken. We're free to love, to uh, take the risk of loving, not knowing what the results will be. We're free to make much of God in how we live out our days. We're even free to go to dangerous places for the gospel or to let our children go to dangerous places for the gospel when they grow up. You know, sometimes our, our idol of safety can, can actually get in the way of advancing the gospel's mission. But if God is our shepherd and if the shepherd is with us, we don't have to be afraid. Even if this world does its worst to us, and it may, we know that it's already done far worse to Christ. Our shepherd, who is with us in the midst of it, and will be faithful to deliver us out of it. If not in this world, then in the one to come. Jesus says in Luke 12, I tell you, my friends, 
Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has power to throw you into hell. So if, we're, if we want to be afraid of something, fear God. Not in, a, not in a, a sense of, I'm scared that he might hurt me, but in a reverence and trust. Because if the one who has authority to do that accepts us as his child, you've got nothing to be afraid of. You've got nothing to be afraid of. Not only is our shepherd stronger than the evil of this world, he will be faithful to bring us safely home. And that's the third point in this psalm in verses 5 through 6. That if you have the shepherd, you have hope. If you have the shepherd, you have hope. And verse 5 is where we make this transition from the pastoral imagery to the royal imagery, to the great feast and celebration in God's own house. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If we have the shepherd, we have hope. Hope of victory. Hope of a warm welcome into God's presence. The imagery here is of a rich banquet hosted by God the shepherd king and we're invited to the table it's this lavish feast a cup that overflows with wine the anointing oil which is a a picture of rejuvenation as in psalm 104 wine to gladden the heart of man oil to make his face shine bread to strengthen his heart so it's it's a picture of God's provision again but it's also a picture of celebration and victory. Because notice who's in the audience for this meal. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, if you're at battle, sitting down to eat dinner in the presence of your enemies is typically not a good idea. Unless they've already been defeated. That's the picture here. They've already been defeated. They've already been conquered. We have victory over the forces of evil that are epitomized in this valley of deep darkness. And so if we have the shepherd, we have hope. But again, there's often a difference between what we know to be true and what we actually feel in our hearts. And so when we consider our weakness and specifically our unworthiness, The idea of going into God's presence sometimes has the opposite effect of comfort. Instead, it makes me insecure. It makes me fearful. What happens if I'm brought into the king's presence and he doesn't want me? What happens if he sends me away? If he looks at my life and into my heart and sees how I've made so little of him, how I've replaced him, him with my wants and my desires and my needs in order to make much of myself and not his name, what if he's actually heard every careless word that I've uttered and every, uh, every selfish, cruel thought? What if he knows how I secretly think I would do a way better job running this world than he does? What if he has a record of every wrong and finds out that so much of my life I've spent actually on the side of the enemy's trying to topple him off of his throne. 
when we think of God's presence and then we think of our own hearts, it's easy to fear rejection because he's so holy and we are so not. We don't measure up and we know that not before a perfect God. And, and, and so you know, maybe we then try to clean up our lives, right? I've blown it, so I've got to make it up to him. But ultimately, we find ourselves in one of two places when we do that. Either we become self-righteous, as though we are good enough and, and in and of ourselves, that we have put our lives back together in such a way that God's obligated to accept us. We become self-righteous, or those more honest among us become self-loathing, because we know that's not true, and it's never going to be true, and all we can see is our sin and our unworthiness, and, and we end up defeated by fear of rejection and blind to the mercy of God. And the reality is, it, it, it's an honest question, because God does hear every wicked thought and word and and. and he does see the sin in our hands and in our hearts. He does have a record of wrongs. And no amount of trying harder to make it up will change what's in that record. We do deserve his wrath as sinners before him. His holy anger against those who've rejected his holy rule. We don't deserve the banquet table. We deserve the dungeon. We deserve death's shadow to fall on us, for we are treasonous and rebellious at heart. But we have a good shepherd who meets us in our sin and doesn't leave us where we are, but brings us to himself, changes us, makes us new, and he does it by his own grace. Not by what we do for him, but by what he has done for us. A good shepherd who is able to bring us safely home. And he accomplishes that according to the gospel of John by laying his life down for the sheep. Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. So Jesus is talking about the, the epitome of what a good shepherd does. He gives himself for the sheep. He dies for the sheep to protect them. But this isn't just any sort of you know, shepherd. This is the kind of shepherd who has the authority not only to lay his life down, but to take it up again when he's done. And, it, and it's, of course, it's an allusion to the cross and the resurrection. The reason Jesus is able to carry us safely through the valley of the shadow of death is not because he knows a shortcut or, or another route to just kind of go around it and avoid all of that. It's because he willingly plunged himself into it for us. He took the death upon himself that we deserved to receive God's righteous anger against our sin in our place and to disarm all unrighteousness and all evil in this world. And then he rose victoriously as king and savior to give us new life. He laid down his life and took it up again that he might be our good, faithful shepherd. The one who gives us everything we need. The one 
If we have, we don't have to be afraid. And the only one who is able to bring us safely home. And so if we trust in Jesus, if we place the full weight of our hope in him, in his life and death, then even though we deserve the dungeon, we're welcomed into God's victorious celebration. We have a place at God's table with our name on the tag reserving our spot. If you have the shepherd, you have hope. And that hope changes everything when you're in the midst of the valley, when life is falling apart, when death finally strikes. That hope changes everything. Our good shepherd will bring us home. Verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Or even better uh, translation, I think, shall pursue me all the days of my life. The goodness and mercy of God through Jesus Christ are like the two hounds of heaven that are just kind of barking at the flock, keeping them moving in the right, in the right direction. They, they pursue us, bringing us home. And in God's presence, we will dwell in joy and peace, making much of God forever. The house of the Lord, the temple, that's, that's the picture. It's the place where God dwells. It's God's home. That's our destination. Now in heaven, waiting for Christ's return until a new heavens and new earth, whereas Revelation 21 puts it, the dwelling place of God will be with man He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You think how many tears fall in this broken world, in this valley of the shadow of death. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Nothing more to be afraid of. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is the hope we have from our good shepherd. If you have the shepherd, you have everything that you need. If you have the shepherd, you don't have to be afraid. And if you have the shepherd, you have hope. And in Christ, that hope will not disappoint. Let's pray. Gracious Father, would you teach us to hold fast to you, our shepherd? Lord, we feel the brokenness of this world in so many ways. And there's such a great temptation in our hearts to look inside or to look elsewhere to try and make it through. Lord, keep our eyes fixed on you. Remind us of Christ's love for us daily. Remind us of the power of the resurrection, the power of the Spirit that is within us such that we need not be afraid. Remind us to be patient when, when our experience doesn't line up with your promises, to, to trust that you are still at work and that if you did not spare your only Son but graciously gave Him to us, how will you not also with Him Give us all things. Give us grace to hold the shepherd's hand, 
to hold fast and to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.